How you doing? Backstory podcast. This is a number eight. We'll be talking about corruption and a couple of other things today. My name's Francis Paul Rip. I'm with the uh, Rip Report. You can go on the Rip Report and find out a lot of what we're talking about today. And today we also have Teresa Brown, that's a uh, guest, and is going to be telling us a little story about what happened to her. But prior to that, let me mentioned a few things that are happening in Baldwin County. The uh, Frank Brown Songwriters Festival, you know, is November 7th, November 17th. And I encourage everybody to go out and participate. You'll see some very good songwriters. Uh, Floribama has been known for this for the last 35 years. Also, we want to give a shout-out to some people that gave us some donations a couple of donations that were received lately through the rip report and backstory podcast we greatly appreciate it the rip reports nonprofit, and uh it is appreciated i assure you uh one of the other things that we've been working on in the past and want everybody to realize that we're still working on is the baldwin county sewer regulations and we've been we've had people that are talking with the um, Alabama Public Service Commission and our local legislators. And we're hopeful that this is going to end up being uh, something that we can correct in Baldwin County because uh, we're the largest county, and yet we don't have any type of sewer regulations whatsoever. Uh, The couple of other things that we've been working on is, one is we made a records request in Baymanette for some records involving ethics uh, reports and statements of economic interest. On October 18th, uh, Mayor Wills wrote back and told us that those records were not available through the city. So we will now go through the Ethics Commission and we will report back on that in a later date. one of the stories that we're also working on is one about the wharf in Orange Beach, which is uh, very, very interesting. Involves, again, attorneys, judges, and real estate people. But this has been developing, and we've heard many, many, many complaints over the years about this particular situation. We'll come back to it. And then uh, in uh, Fairhope, we're going to see a level of corruption that we're getting kind of used to. And now this is, I'm paraphrasing from the uh, mayor's last statement over there, Mayor Wilson. The council has never produced a budget on time. This will be their fourth year in a year where they have not produced a budget on time. In the middle of the budget process, they're supposed to have the budget done by October 1st. And in the middle of the process, they introduce and want to purchase $2.65 million worth of land outside of the city. Now, they have no way of paying for it. They're going to have to deplete the reserves by probably more than half. And capital projects and critical maintenance upgrades are going to be neglected. And they just purchased the K-1 Center with the next, next site, which was about $5 million, and they have no plan for that. But between... Uh, Council President uh, Burrell, Councilman Boone, and Councilman Brown, there seems to be this urgency to purchase this 113 acres. Uh, Again, again, the council 
Uh, you know, the last time the uh, the council just voted themselves a raise as well as full family insurance. And the mayor had been trying to get them to wait until an Auburn study came back that would give them a more accurate idea as to what would be financially feasible. Nope. Granted themselves full family insurance, even though they're part-time and the employees don't get it. Now, here we are with 113 acres. There's a restore-funded strategic comprehensive land use plan, Vision 2030. And that's forthcoming and allows for an, ex an inclusive process to define the vision of the city and how to attain long-term goals with that vision. Again, the council's totally disregarding that, looking the other way, and going to try to push through this coming Monday night this purchase of this land. Now, one of the other things to mention about this is that there has been no public participation involved with purchasing this land. They have talked about this, councilmen among themselves and the rec board, but as far as the general public being able to sit down, come to the council meeting and voice their concerns, that has not happened. Um, the next thing we got is... Uh, uh, we're going to be coming back to is going to be on the RIP report today, uh, Facebook and Baldwin County Legal Legal Facebook, ripreport.com. Uh, the article is about, is called The Watering Hole. I hope that you'll read it. And later in um, this broadcast, we're going to come back to an article in Lanyap called Rid of Mandamus. But before we do that, we're going to talk with uh, Teresa and let Teresa Brown tell us of her little incident that she had. We want to encourage other people that if this similar thing happens to you or something like this and you want to vent about it, we encourage you to do so because when you're silent, no one hears you. So thanks a lot, Teresa. Glad Thank to have you. you here today. and. Why don't you tell our listeners in your own words uh, what your little ordeal was? Well, it started on uh, August of 26th, around 6.30 p.m. I was going home from work, and I was talking on my cell phone. I had my phone up to my ear, and um, I was on the phone approximately four minutes talking when the last 16 seconds of that conversation, a sheriff by the name of Jeff Spaller, was coming in the opposite direction, and he saw me talking on my cell phone, and he turned his lights on and went to make a U-turn, and so I told uh, the person that I was talking to that, you know, basically I needed to get off the phone. I was getting pulled over. So I went ahead and pulled over in advance and waited on him, and when he came up to my car, he said that he had pulled me over because I was talking on my cell phone. And I said, uh, that's not illegal. And he said, yes, it is. And I asked, when was that implemented? And he stated that it has been in effect for a long time. It's been all over the news and this and that. So we, we went back and forth with a couple of, of uh, words about it. And he went back to his vehicle. And while he went back to his vehicle, I was Googling because I knew that it was not illegal. So when he came back, I even... 
uh, had mentioned to him that I know that texting and looking at your phone and things of that nature were illegal, but it is not illegal to talk on your cell phone. So he became, he was very facetious at that point, and he chuckled and said, well, it's only a $25 ticket. It doesn't go on your insurance. And that was not true because it was a $235 ticket. As far as going on my insurance, I haven't even checked that yet. So I'm not sure if, if that does or not. So we went back and forth with a couple more uh, words on the subject. And he handed me my ticket. I put it in my passenger uh, seat. And I didn't look at it until I had gotten home. And when I got home, I went ahead and got on my phone and I called all my, f- my family, my friends, anyone I could think of. And I was telling them, Hey, you guys don't do this because a law had passed and you're going to get a fine like I did. So when I was done uh, calling everyone to warn them about this, I kind of settled down. And during the conversation between uh, the sheriff, the sheriff Jeff Spaller and I, he had mentioned the code several times. So I was going to look at the ticket and look at that code and look it up to see what all pertained under that code. And when I did, it said texting while driving. So then I was I was really upset because I knew that that was not true. So I thought, well, maybe I'm missing something here. And so I went ahead and called the sheriff's department and I spoke to a sheriff that was there. And that young man said, no, it's not illegal to talk on your cell phone. And he looked up the code and he says, no, ma'am, there's nothing in there that states that I, I have not heard of this. So then I thought, well, maybe there's some kind of underlining that he and I weren't aware of. So I went ahead and I went to the Foley Police Department and I spoke with the dispatcher and a couple of police officers and they said, no, it's not illegal. And you need to go across the street to the sheriff's office, ask for a supervisor because he wears a body cam. And I said, great. So I did. So when when I went over there, um, one of the sheriffs had eventually had come out and spoken with me. I told him the whole story. He went back, immediately got on the phone and told the uh, sheriff, Jeff Spaller, that I was there basically making a complaint. And uh, he came out and he told me he did this. And when he came out, he did reiterate the fact that under that code, there was nothing that stated talking on your cell phone was illegal because it's not. It is not illegal. Texting, looking at your phone, things of that nature, that is illegal, but not in the state of Alabama for speaking on your cell phone. Did, did he ever make any attempt to amend the ticket? Uh, no. No, they did not. Uh, so I finally, I, I decided to call our sheriff, Hoss Mack. So I called, I emailed, I went to his office, and he never responded. So that, of course, really upset me. And I went ahead and made a complaint with Alabama Sheriff's Association. And then I got a response. <laughs> and bet. Yes. And basically, it was him telling me that he knows what I had done to him. He did not care about what happened to me. And I feel, my personal opinion is, when you are in a leadership role and you condone this kind of character or behavior of those that are under you, you are just as corrupt. 
So I, I really don't have any respect uh, for this man. But I also called the state attorney general's office, and I gave a report of the incident to them as well. So I was going to go ahead and go to court, even though um, he said it was a $25 ticket. Uh, when I looked it up, it was 235 and I says, well, they're going to have to earn it. So I went to court, and uh, he not only didn't have any proof to back up uh, anything he was saying. He made up a completely different story than what happened. Uh, and the Judge Taylor basically backed him. I had proof of my uh, cell phone conversation, and it does show where I had made the call and I was on that call for four minutes. Now, if you're coming from opposite directions, four minutes is a very long time. No way could he have even seen me pick up that phone and make that call. Did the judge look at that? Evidence? He did. He sure did. And uh, he said that I was guilty, that I had just made that call. And when I went to explain, no, sir, it shows four minutes. Uh, he said he was going to hold me in contempt of court. So this judicial system, in my opinion, in Baldwin County, you are guilty until you can prove you are innocent. You are not innocent until proven guilty. Uh, well, let me add to that, make sure everybody knows that this is myself speaking and the RIP report. But I have talked to literally hundreds of people and all of the different courts, municipal, district, or circuit. And I personally believe, and many believe along with me, that you cannot go to court and expect a fair trial in Baldwin County unless you know somebody or unless you got a lawyer with a connection. Um, that is the way that it is. I mean, that is the way that it is. And that's a sad note. And if there's attorneys and judges that take exception to that, then please get it straight because that's the way people feel out here. Secondly, I'd like to, this is a little bit off the subject, but right on it too. We've had several people call in and have problems like this and everything that are a little bit, you know, more uh, serious than this. And they've tried to represent themselves in Baldwin County. If it's family court, municipal court, you do not represent yourself. They will eat your lunch in Baldwin County if you represent yourself. Now, I know that that's your right, but I highly, highly suggest that you get an attorney to represent you at um, any time. So so what was the final outcome, uh, Teresa, from the, um, from the judge? Uh, he went ahead and said I was guilty and had to pay for the fine. And I was prepared for that because... Uh, I have experienced multiple times of um, this kind of corruption in this county. So I was prepared to pay that, um, and he made me pay that. But uh, what they don't understand is a uniform does not define you. Your character defines you. And it just it leaves the common citizen to the point where we have no respect anymore for the law, and you're in a position that demands that, but yet you don't represent that. Well, it's people like you that'll make a difference, and uh, hopefully uh, those listening know that speaking on the phone is not illegal. Texting is, 
But at the same time, of course, using a phone while driving is not recommended anyway. But um, I would encourage you that if something like this happens again, follow up. Don't be intimidated. We'd like to hear what the complaint is and everything. And uh, related, again, to something that Teresa's talking about here is in Lanyap, uh, the recent Lanyap, uh, what do you know, it's Judge Taylor, too, dismissed a lawsuit against uh, filed against Baldwin County Sheriff's Office earlier this year seeking records about the 2017 officer-involved shooting that provide that uh, was fatal. That was Jonathan Victor. We had spoke about that on an earlier uh, podcast. And again, here you have the Sheriff's Department. You know, where's the transparency? Where's the accountability? Uh, we're not getting anything. Uh, it's going to take the paper plans to appeal a decision uh, through a notice of intent has not formally been filed yet. However, uh, co-publisher Rob Holbert said, quote, appealing this decision to the Alabama Supreme Court is hopefully the right step in gaining access to what is supposed to be public record and, most importantly, shedding light upon the events that led up to an unarmed Jonathan Victor being shot by a deputy after he had a wreck on the side of the road. Why is Lanyap having to be the one to dig to find the truth? And, you know, it seems like sometimes when it comes to law enforcement, uh, some judges, and I'm not implying that uh, Judge Taylor would be this way, but that some judges, uh, if it involves a police officer, they immediately take the side of the police officer. And that's not right. Uh, So anyway, we want to thank Teresa for coming in. We're going to go to a little short blip on the Alabama Constitution. And then after that, we will see if Mr. Still is still in the building. Alabama has the longest constitution in the world. Seriously. Longer than any state or country on earth. At over 310,000 words, it's more than 40 times longer than the U.S. Constitution. And if that sounds impressive, it's actually a huge mess. To understand the size of the Constitution, we're going to have to go back to 1901 when the Constitution was signed. See, back then, the people writing the Constitution had a couple of goals beyond just setting up a legislative, judicial, and executive branch. They also wanted to make sure the document maintained racial inequality because Alabama. But another major goal of the authors was to keep property taxes low. To do this, the Constitution strips local counties and municipalities of the ability to make a lot of decisions for themselves. Anything they wanted to change about local taxes or certain laws would have to be approved first by the state legislature and then put forward to the whole state as a constitutional amendment. The idea was that if it took the entire state voting on a constitutional amendment to raise taxes, it would just be too difficult to get it passed. Of course, we've had to make changes over the past hundred years, so we've gone through the process of amending the Constitution more than 900 times. And those amendments is where the bulk of the Alabama Constitution's length comes from. Some of the amendments actually make important changes to the Constitution, modifying rules like the number of votes required to impeach the governor, but the majority of them are just small local ordinances. If a county wants to buy a sprayer truck to deal with mosquitoes, they need a constitutional amendment. If they want to build a bridge, they need a constitutional amendment. If you want to legalize bingo parlors in your county, you need a constitutional amendment. Heck, in 2010, three different constitutional amendments had to be passed to outlaw the use of human poop as fertilizer in three different counties. Whereas in other states, seeing a constitutional amendment on the ballot usually means a big change. In Alabama, voters have gotten used to seeing a handful of amendments on nearly every ballot. And it's up to the voter to figure out if it's an amendment they actually need to weigh in on, or if it 
gives the town librarian a raise on the other side of the state. So that's the reason behind Alabama's record-breaking constitution. It's mostly stuff that shouldn't be in a constitution. And I'm Jonathan Sobolewski for Reckon. First things first, Alabama State Bar Rules of Professional Conduct Rule 7.2e requires the following language in all attorney communications. No representation is made that the quality of legal services to be performed is greater than the legal than the quality of legal services performed by other lawyers. My name is Harry Steele. I'm going to be joining uh, Paul for the rest of the podcast. Um, Backwoods Southern Lawyer. Oh, we don't have Reigns today. Anybody know where Reigns is? Don't be his loss. MIA. <laughs> um, so I had a few things I wanted to talk to uh, you guys about. Um, we threw a video up on our Facebook page. I shared it last night on my personal page. The League of Women Voters of, I don't want to get this wrong because they did a, it's a fantastic video. Um, the League of Women Voters of the Tennessee Valley hosted an attorney named Julian Butler and um, as part of their bicentennial celebration in Huntsville they have all I believe it's five I think we've had five constitutions in Alabama um, in the last 200 years and all five of the original manuscripts are there in Huntsville I guess it's at the Von Braun Center do do you know Paul probably Um, so anyway it's about an hour of your time only 60 people have watched this video. It's one of the most interesting retrospective looks at how form follows structure, um, not function, but structure. Um, and, of course, the structure was intended to ensure that um, blacks and poor whites were um, continued to, to maintain uh, their disenfranchised status in Alabama. Um, and that's pretty much it. I, I, I do want to talk more about the Constitution of Alabama in the future. And I guess he, this may be a good point to talk to you a little bit about something, Paul. Um, the Alabama legislature and the Constitution of 1901 withholds home rule from county governments, um, which leads us to the problem that we're in now with regulating the sewer. Cities have home rule. Cities can regulate whatever they want to inside of their corporate limits, right? Right. But the counties cannot. Um, the legislature, um, and it, like I said, you need to go watch Julian Butler's speech to the uh, League of Women Voters up in, um, up in Huntsville, um, it'll it'll give you some insights as to just why we have the structure of government. Um, and and another thing I wanted to point out, you know, a lot of people are unaware that the position of sheriff in the state of Alabama, the sheriff is not a local government official like you think he is. He's actually a member of the executive branch of state government. The boundaries of his district just happen to be nested inside of, of each county. Um, and so if you were wanting to uh, keep blacks and poor whites in their place, how would you set up your constitution to do that? You would make the most powerful politician in each county also the head of law enforcement in that county. 
Um, so, anyway, just some things to think about. Um, I, I, I came across that, that video the other night and watched it all the way through, never took a break. It was I, I was intrigued the entire time. And if any of you kids are up at Auburn right now and you have an opportunity to take a class from a professor named Wayne Flint, um, he's Professor Emeritus of History at Auburn University. I took a few classes from him when I was there. And um, I would say he has the same retrospective uh, style that uh, Mr. Butler has in this in this uh, video that they've posted, and they just posted it August sixth. So this is this is fresh information, and I would uh, encourage you to go take a watch. Um, another thing, Paul, our our new friends at Alabama Power Company um, received a fine. Did you know that there was so so they they have a disused um, steam plant up at Mulberry Fork on, right. the, on the Black Warrior River. And I guess it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but best I can tell, they were in there, and there was some kind of fire suppression system in the building. They were dismantling it, or I, I don't know why they'd be fixing it if they'd shut the dang plant down. But anyway, they were in there doing some work to it. All uh, I don't know if a valve broke or whatever, but all of that uh, water with fire suppression chemical mixed into it got into the river and killed a bunch of fish. So what do you think happened when the Department of Conservation guys showed up and wanted to count the dead fish so that they could come up with, some, get their arms around the magnitude of this thing so that they could come up with a fine? They got stopped at the gate. That's right. <laughs> they didn't have proper credentials, and the Alabama Power Company folks sent them packing until they came back with the appropriate credentials. Mm -hmm. Now, that's hard to believe. <clears throat> Oh, uh, not really. <laughs> well, look, when I, if I shot a damn turkey and that thing fell on this side of the fence, do you think I'd say, I'm sorry, Clem, you're going to have to come back with proper, you know, if mm -hmm. they got on a green jumpsuit and a badge yeah. let, and they're, they say they're there to count dead fish, who would make that up? That's right. the question. So anyway, um, I th oh, and, and just so you know, ADEM and Alabama Power Company, you see, they negotiated their fine. Did you hear what I said? It. Negotiated. They nego it, it wasn't like they went out there and counted the fish and said, okay, this is what you're going to do. They negotiated the fine. And those fines are more a slap on the wrist than anything else. Two hundred and, let's see, $50,000 civil penalty and $172,046 to compensate for the compensate for the fish killed in the incident. In other words, the fish have a monetary value, and that's what those guys were going to do out there. And the allegation was, in the meantime, when they turned them around, they went up there and picked up a bunch of the dead fish so that they wouldn't be counted to be included in the fine. But we'll never know because nobody from the state was there to witness it. Well, groundwater pollution ponds at coal ash ponds, the amount of the fines uh and it's been pointed out in several different articles michelle Harmon it's one that works in the environmental section sector and she states that the two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine is just a slap on the wrist because same thing here with fish kill and of course god knows how many fish were actually killed but uh, uh until they bring those fines up to a point that really makes them hurt they're not going to change anything 
Well, and so um, I've done a little bit of research on my own. If you go to alabamapower.com, our company, and uh, keep if you keep drilling down, you can eventually get to all these. Um, uh, maybe it's under how we operate, um, CCC rule compliance. And then um, once you get down there, you can go to um, – you can cl- click on berry steam plant, plant gasting, whatever you need to. And then un- at the bottom of the screen, there are several drop-downs uh, under Ash Pond, Jimson Pond. And if you go to the Ground uh, Water mon- Monitoring and Corrective Action Plan or either the Design Criteria or Closure and Post-Closure, there are documents on there that are – several hundred pages long i slogged through them so you wouldn't have to and um what i've come up with so far um and this is in their own uh pending regulatory uh, they're going through the regulatory process now to get a permit to permanently close the berries the 300 acre berry steam plant ash pond and um in March 2016, their leachate report reported 0.0277 milligrams per liter of arsenic, 0.136 milligrams per liter of barium, 0.5 milligrams per liter of calcium, 273 milligrams per liter of dissolved solids. So I guess that'd just be turbidity in the water. And then 19.7 milligrams per liter of chloride. Um all of these are pretty pretty bad players in the world of chem, uh, chemicals, at least when it comes into contact with human flesh or tissue. Um, and I would really encourage you to go. Uh, we're going to post this uh, or post a link to it on our Facebook page. Um, go take a look at that, and you can see it's in their own report. They know exactly what they're putting in the environment, and uh, I think you should be concerned about it as oh, we are. Well, also – let me mention in uh, Lanyap, uh, Gabe Times wrote an article, Immune to Criticism, Adam Director, secures a contract for extension despite negative performance evaluations. You really, you really need to read this to understand why some politicians are and how the obvious can be spinned in a different direction. Um, uh, Adam had... Uh, some feedback come in from letters addressing Mr. Uh, Lance LaFerre, who is the ADEM director. And generally, they dismissed 187 negative letters as just statements, quote, with some constructive feedback, quote. And then there were 18 letters of support for Mr. LaFerre, but they were all connected to him and endorsements from the um uh the commission itself now that's here's what gets me you have 187 complaints and 18 are positive and those are all you know padded if you will i call it the bill cosby rule when somebody tells you something over 15 or 20 times or makes that many accusations, you have to give it some sort of credit. I call it the Richard Gere gerbil story <laughs> yeah. rule. Okay. But LaFleur told Lanyap that he understood all the comments but said both ADAM and AEMC have a duty to consider perception versus facts. 
He also alleged that majority of the letters were sent as part of a letter-writing campaign urged by Waterkeeper Alliance organization, including Baykeeper. Well, was that not the purpose? A letter-writing campaign that would voice... They what, asked for feedback, it, right? But right, the letters right. they got, they're not going to consider. Correct. They wanted to dismiss the complete sellout, major disgrace, inept corporate figurehead, allegiance to money over public safety, unfit to serve, abysmal, unconscious, shameless. It goes on and on. Adam is also known as the... Alabama Department of Environmental Maniacs, and I'll close right there, Harry. You take it from there. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that other than they did negotiate a fine of $222,046. Negotiate. Negotiated. It wasn't levied against them. They agreed to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, getting back down to the beach and um, – are you familiar with this page, obawebsite.com? Correct. Is, is that, that, that's not an official Orange Beach municipal. That, that's just somebody like Paul Ripp out there putting up a. As I understand it. I don't know the gentleman, blog. but as I understand it. So it's right. by John Mullen. Oh, you know John? I don't know John, but I know of the, um, uh, of his efforts. He uh, produces a lot of events that are going, not produces, but publishes, you know, what's going on in the area as well. So this, so here's another freebie for you guys. A little a little uh, walk down recent memory lane. Um, Hugh Branion was the was the director of the Gulf State Park for many years, and I credit him with keeping it affordable for people who live here in Alabama who may not be lawyers or guys that own dive shops in Belize or whatever. Um, he always kept the rates reasonable, and he always resisted pressure from from Gulf Shores and Orange Beach and the county and the state to go in there and develop this state park. And, you know, what's happened now is everything's developed around it, and there's pressure to and – and this is a uh, – this article's about a, a local realtor named Jeb Smith um, who has started a petition – and wants there to be another north-south um, route between Canal Road and the and the uh, Gulf Beach Boulevard. Okay, mm-hmm. and right now there's a there's a right of way that was acquired for I guess it was Ball and EMC to put a power uh, line through there. So so there's right of way there. It certainly wasn't intended to be for a thoroughfare, but I guess they paved it under. Uh, under that power line and and I, and I guess service vehicles or, or whatever could use it. Um, now there's Lake Shelby and then there's a, a little, uh, <laughs> snaky alligatory little tributary that runs up and there's another lake over to the right or to the east of Lake Shelby. And the proposal would be to pave that road. And that would be the only place you'd have to cross. But of course there's a whole lot of wetlands around Lake Shelby and, um, you know, we, we want to bring to light that we're glad that people are taking some initiative out there. I just don't know if this is the right issue. Um, if you don't want traffic, you better move out of Orange Beach or Gulf Shores. That's right. It, it's coming. It's never going to get any better. And um, that, um, let me think, what's the name well, of the road that runs down by uh, from Doc Seafood to the Gulf uh, Beach Boulevard I, past Cotton Bayou right there? 
I can't think of it either, but it runs by City Hall. You got that route, and then 181? you got 181. No, eh, no, no, it's no, not 181. No, I can't. Think um, of that. Anyway, uh, so they're looking for another north-south route. I think going through the parks a really bad way to go about it. Um, you know, Gulf State Park is one of the very few places uh, that's in its natural state down there, whatever that means. Yeah, well, they like to use the word connectivity, and connectivity can be very good sometimes, but sometimes it can be very bad. I know they've been talking about this for years, wanting to cut through that park. Uh, just cutting through the park, uh, to me, is a red flag in itself. Well, and you're down there with your family, and you're staying in one of the little cabins, and you rented it for two or three nights, and everybody's got a bicycle, and you go, and you know, and they want to make it a damn thoroughfare through there. Right. That's not what the state park's there for. It's for it's for the citizens to enjoy, uh, the citizens of Alabama to enjoy. And if you just happen to live in Orange Beach, you're just gonna have to deal with the fact that they're not gonna develop the state park as a thoroughfare to make your life more convenient. It's just not right. going to happen. Or right. at least I hope it doesn't happen. Um, so the, along those same lines going on down there in Gulf Shores, the city of Gulf Shores purchased th 53 acres on Little Lagoon. They did it through the uh, Natural Resources Damagement Assessment Fund. Uh, it says that the property has 6,100 feet of shoreline and significant area of dunes, wetlands, and other crit critical habitat. Uh, so here's what I want to know, Baldwin Times. Whenever you write a daggum article, I want to know how much they paid for the property and who owned the property prior to the public purchasing it. So if you guys would do a little bit more investigating before you just write a, p a puff piece about Gulf Shores got some free money and they're doing something good with it, I, uh, those are the type of things. And, I, and a little more detail. A little more detail, guys. Just, yeah. you know, like who owned it, how much <laughs> did they pay for it. The who, what, where, when, and why of journalism. Correct. Um, if y'all could get around to that, we'd appreciate it. Um, oh, my God. Do you know who Eddie Smith is? Oh, yeah. The, okay. the infamous uh, hunter from years ago that I read about. And then I saw an article recently, and I meant to come back and read it, and I did not. So he's either, was in he's either the rich man's Gary Finch or the poor man's <laughs> Gary Finch. I don't, I don't know which side he falls on. So at one point in time, okay, so do you know who the Croc family is? Uh, I'd heard of them, yes. Okay, so the Croc family are the people depicted in, I can't remember the name of the movie with Michael Keaton, but anyway, they were the McDonald's founders family, okay? Mm -hmm. K-R-O-C. So... The Crocs built a mansion down here south of Mobile on Fowl River, and somehow this notorious outdoorsman, fugitive, and all-around, I don't know how to describe Eddie, um, he ends up living in the Croc mansion, um, and I, the allegation was that he came by it through some kind of a fraudulent lease, but then they couldn't get him out. I mean, it was... It, it, it was something like and it, that. And right. it was like some really bizarre stuff. Like, he had all these Eastern European young ladies who 20 or so that lived at the house with him. And then um, the, the, the most notorious thing that happened was the Alabama State Troopers get a call that there's a guy trying to run another a truck off the road, and the truck is hauling... Um, a go fast scare drug dealer, drug runner boat, whatever you want to call it. One of those big boats that nothing you can do on it, but go fast and eat a sandwich. Um, so he's, so they, he owned the, or 
I guess he purchased this boat and never made a payment on it. So they came to repo it, and it's it's one of those boats that's, that's got that shrink wrap on it, and it was formerly owned by the Hooters Corporation. So it still has the orange Hooter letter, and, and he's running this truck. <laughs> anyway, if you can imagine some guy running a truck and trailer off the road with a 40-foot go-fast boat behind it. Anyway. Um, a lot of his problems started with illegal hunting, though. Well, it started there, and yeah. it ended up with him being a felon in possession of a firearm and all these hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammo in the basement of the crock mansion when they finally came looking for him. So, anyway, our condolences to the family of Mr. Smith. He died in federal prison um, just a few days ago on August 21st. He was in Springfield, Missouri in custody, and... um to say that he he had a uh, his persona was larger than life that would be very true. Some of the early articles were very very colorful. If you want to go back and Google them, uh, Paul, did you cover North Baldwin Utilities' response or yes, the city's I did. response? Okay, I, did. I, I didn't know what all you got done while I, before I yes, got here. We're gonna. Well, we didn't get a response. Well, we did get a a, a very short and brief letter from uh, the mayor of Bamanette and. He basically told us that they did not have those type of records that we were requesting, so we will move on and go to the Ethics Commission and see if we can find them there. And if we can't find them there, then we'll take the next step appropriate. All right, so I want to talk just a, a minute about the um, investigation into corruption going on in the, in the secondary college system, in particular at Coastal Alabama Community <coughs> College here in Baymanette. So... Um, I was able to speak with some people who were more knowledgeable than I was. And um, up in Prairie Bluff, Alabama, um, it, it, it appears that the, the folks who were found to have been uh, uh, misappropriating uh, materials and funds from the college system had built a three-story hunting lodge divided into two separate units, meaning two separate heating and air conditioner units, two different zones, two different mm -hmm. kitchens um, for the purposes of renting it out uh, for people who, who wanted to come up there and hunt. Um, one of the things that they stole from the college was the gym gymnasium floor. Okay. So they go in this, they go in this place and they get to looking around they start moving furniture around. What well, turns out the damn free throw line is still <laughs> on the wood that they put down on the floor in the uh, hunting kind, lodge. Kind of a giveaway. It was a little bit. I'm, I think, Paul, you and I could have solved this one. Yeah, sanding. Um, <laughs> so just so just some dates to remember. Um, the consolidation date out there was January 11, 2017. The letter to the president of the college saying that there was corruption came in September of 2017 and to date nine of the 11 people who knew about the investigation out there in coastal, including Chris Johnson, the former chief of police at coastal are all gone. Nine out of 11 of the people that were, that knew about the investigation uh, when it was ongoing are gone. So, Remember I told you that the chancellor for the secondary school system went to another college and, and identified a personnel director and said, hey, go down here to Coastal and look over this Burke girl's shoulder and see if she's doing her job. 
guess who's in Ms. Burke's job now? Who? The woman that did the damn assessment. <laughs> Ms. Sylvester. She's now the VP of personnel at Coastal. I mean, you know. So it goes. So it goes. Oh, and uh, there's an anonymous letter that was sent around to everybody back when all this happened. I have no idea who sent it to us. Um, it was from one of those Yahoo accounts. It's obviously mm. no way that we'll ever know. Right. Um, but we're going to put the letter up on the uh, up on our Facebook page. Just ne- just take it for what it is. It's, it's an anonymous letter. We don't know if it's, if the contents of it are true or whatever. But some of the allegations are related to the chancellor. And the fact that he was the, I want to say he was the the uh, superintendent of schools for mm-hmm. for Enterprise Alabama, he resigned or left that job and went to work for the Hand Arendal Law Firm as a lobbyist. Now, guess who he lobbied for? Who the secondary college system? Mm-hmm. So then he found. So then they found him to be the chancellor. And um, one of the allegations is is that Hand Arendal was paid handsomely to come up with consolidation plans at several of the different community college systems. Now, now, just unless the former secretary of education worked at Hand Arendal Law Firm, why would they have any more expertise than Harry and Paul to come up with a consolidation plan? That's a good question, and yeah. I bet I bet it costs a lot more too. Well, I, the allegation is it cost $150,000 for them to do a uh, um, a study on <laughs> how, East Alabama's consolidation. How many, how many pages was a study, you know? Uh, well, that's another problem. <laughs> the, they, they, the, there have been some allegations that the, the study was very thin. Uh, like 10,000 a page, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, well. All right. Uh, so, so, anyway, that's enough about Coastal. We'll... We, once I get my arms around it and have an opportunity to talk to some of these folks, you know, Roger Bates is the managing partner at Hand Air and All, and he is the attorney of record for the college system. And I'm sure as a professional courtesy, I'll be hearing back from him. Right. If nobody else. All right, Paul. What you got left? Back to me. Yes, sir. I think you're going to need to leave the room. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not getting up again now. Well, this is about the uh, writ of mandamus, that uh, article that was written by Jason Johnson, Gabriel Times. Again, this is in the uh, Lanyap. Uh, oh, is this the, the <clears throat> Denardi case? Correct. This is, uh, this is the Paula Denardi case uh, involving Sherry's, McSherry's uh, Irish pub. Right, in- and so just let me say this. And we'll get it out of the way. Sure. Um, at one point in time, I'd been retained my, by Ms. Denardi. Correct. And so I really can't say anything about this. I'm sorry. Um, and I certainly right. don't have anything to say about any mandam- anybody mandamus and a judge. So Correct. I'm going to keep my mouth shut and let you do your thing, Paul. Yeah, and let me be responsible for what I'm saying. Uh, I don't want Harry to catch any flack, you know. They might bar him from going to McDonald's next time. We don't know. Uh, the lawsuit itself stems from a November 23rd, what they call a Black Friday incident when uh, with McSherry in Fairhope. And um, this is not McSherry's first time at bat here. Now, 
One of the things that happens is if you call me, you call uh, myself, or you contact me through the RIP report, and it has anything to do with anything legal, I'm going to ask you three questions first. Who's the judge, and who are the two attorneys representing each party? That's the first thing I ask every single time. And by doing that, I can see a pattern over the number of years as to where these complaints have been handled. And I address it somewhat in the article today that I wrote in the RIP report called The Watering Hole. I hope you'll go to that and read it. It'll be an extension of what this writ of mandamus is. But basically, Mr. McSherry, now, uh, back in... um, uh, I think that was, let's see, back in 17, uh, I had a call from Mr. Nall Hollis, who uh, is a famous artist, Nall, and that resides in Fairhope. And I advocated for him and his complaint against uh, Mr. McSherry. He'd gone to the police and was kind of disgruntled about the way that it was handled. And I told him, I said, what I recommended was that he go back to the police, file an incident report, and get a lawyer. Now, in the case of uh, Paula Donardi, and I heard about this in the very beginning, um, I did the same thing. I, t- I told Paul I had not met Paula Donardi at this time. It's just telephone conversation. I told her that, uh, you know, I couldn't give her any legal advice, but that she definitely needed to get an attorney and that second, and she said, well, I think I should call the mayor. And I said, well, I think you should call the mayor as well. And I said, but you should also go to the uh, police department and talk to the police. As I understand it, what did happen was exactly that. Mayor Wilson arranged a meeting with the uh, police chief, and they discussed it. Now, the... Um, um, Writ of mandamus, as defined in the Legal Institute of Cornell School of Law, the writ of mandamus is an order from a higher court instructing a lower court to properly, quotes, to properly fulfill their official duties or to correct an abuse of discretion. Uh, now, Paula Donardi's it's, it's any elected official. It wouldn't have to necessarily be a judge. Okay. Any, any, any elected official not performing their duties, uh-huh. you could get a writ of mandamus saying, Sheriff, give Mr. Steele his security pass back. That would be an example of a writ of mandamus. Correct, correct. Okay. But going back to the Null incident, in the Null incident, which was on March 18th, 2017, uh, he was cited for harassment. And that case, he was put on probation. He was on probation at the time that this original incident came up. Now, the RIP report calls it the bar stool. It's a bar stool incident where Mr. McSherry was visiting a bar that night at, uh, on this night in question. And um, for one reason or another, knocked Miss Donardi off the bar stool. Now she's about five foot, weighs about a hundred pounds, 
And this is all on videotape. This has all been on uh, Facebook, everywhere else. However, the attorneys, when talking about the null issue previously, they wanted to imply that this was something political. You know, uh, the mayor, <laughs> the mayor of uh, Fairhope. I, I must say she must be responsible for everything because she gets blamed for everything. And she had absolutely nothing to do with this at all other than trying to console a concerned citizen who, you know, was roughed up in that city. Uh, now, this is being handled by uh, uh, Mr. Uh, McSherry is being represented by James B. Pittman, Jr., uh, and I believe that is our late, not late, but the um, uh, last state senator we had, Mr. B.P. Pittman, as I call him. Uh, anyway, this this is ridiculous because they're trying to make this look political. They're Mr. Uh, McSherry on April 5th, 2010, was subject of a harassment complaint and was no processed February of 2011. On 2010, he was cited for public intox. That case was no processed. On November 17th of 2014, he was cited for domestic violence, and that case was no processed. On March 18th, Mishari was uh, cited for harassment, in the case involving Noel Hollis. And on November 23rd, 2018, McSherry was cited public intox and third-degree assault on Miss Denardi. Now, let me ask you people, how many of you do you think, this is one, two, three, four, five different incidences, the man has never served a day in jail so far. He was on parole from the Noel case when he did what he did with Miss with uh, Miss Denardi, and the Fairhope Municipal Prosecutor Marcus McDowell, uh, Laniap sought information from him. Why so much time passed, and Mr. McSherry's uh, probation was not revoked. However, we can't get any. Uh, they couldn't get any response from uh, Mr. McDowell. Uh, Mr. McDowell is, by the way, the council president and also the same a council attorney for Fairhope, and he is the same council attorney for Fairhope that sat there quietly while uh, the council president denied uh, my right to speak, which ultimately led to a federal lawsuit that they lost. So... In my opinion, in the next election, I hope people are paying attention. They need to get Mr. Brown, Mr. Boone, Mr. Burrell, the other two councilmen out of there. They need to get the municipal judge out of there, and they need to get the city attorney out of there. A city attorney and municipal judge can be replaced by simply replacing the council and getting them to do something. Now, the one thing that um, um, I have not been served yet, but I expect to be served, for these documents, and I'm going to have to go along with, again, what Mr. Holbert and Lanyap in this article said, and he says, quote, 
Mr. Pittman's efforts to subpoena subpoena Lanyap's email, phone, and personal communications over the past year violate not only the Alabama journalist source privilege, but also attorney-client privilege, and we intend to fight this as much as we can. Well, the RIP report's in the same boat. Uh, We are not going to be silenced or intimidated uh, through legal means uh, to be silent. Because that is the problem in Baldwin County. Everybody answers everything. If there's a real serious problem, be it the sheriff's department or anything judicial or whatever, everybody just gets quiet. We need more and more people to come forward and say the same things or speak their mind like Teresa Brown did. But I hope that you'll follow this uh, lawsuit. I do know that uh, uh, Paula Donardi has said that one of her motivations for going forward with her cases and everything was that she had the firm belief that if she didn't, Mr. McSherry was eventually going to kill somebody in a drunken rage or whatever it was. I know that in the incident with uh, Mr. Uh, with Nall, that Nall told me that he was very, very scared, that he thought that he was fixing to be assaulted and he had no way to uh, defend himself. Hey, Paul, let's let's stop for a second. Right. I don't want to get any substance, but there are a lot of people who aren't from Fairhope. So right. tell us who Nall is. Uh, Nall's a famous artist that uh, originally was from Troy and has lived around the world, painted in Europe, and you'll see his paintings uh, everywhere from the Grand to unique museums from one end to the other and he still has a uh, large studio in downtown fairhope fairhope how, is how old is Nall? i would say Nall is 68 i'm guessing so somewhere but, around but some somewhere in there and 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 Nall was not in the best of physical condition and i took that uh and he's not some big old ass whipping well, corn, no, that's cornbread a, 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 fed boy like I am. Exactly, and this is and this is what and this is why I think cases like this need to be um, exposed. This all of these incidents involve women, except for Nall. So he's beaten. He's you know assaulting or subject to harassment complaints, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's all involves women and drinking. And with Nall is the only exception to where it wasn't a woman. Allegedly. Allegedly. But you don't see him trying to, you know, and, and Nall, the, the way that it started with Nall was that he had a business across from McSherry's. He got up in the morning and he used to clean up all the bottles and trash that was around McSherry's. So he put it in a bag and he asked him politely, he said, look, couldn't you get somebody to pick it up or could you go to plastic containers rather than this just being all over the street? And that's where the incident led to uh, McSherry going across the street um, in uh, a drunken fit, fit, only being pulled off by his own, by somebody that was with him. I'm talking an awful lot to Go get ahead. you to, I'm dragging some background out of it because you know this so well, you assume yeah. everybody else does. Okay. That's true. Tell well, us about Burrell and McSherry's relationship. Well, Again, in the watering hole, the article I wrote today, uh, Council President Burrell, judges, lawyers, that was the watering hole. Two or three years ago, McSherry's was the place. That's where they hung out, 
And uh, well, we had bar association social there. <laughs> well, correct, but uh, there was a little bit more than that going on there. And so this was a location where um, a lot of these people were um, assembling, particularly Mr. Burrell and but Mr. Burrell. But didn't Burrell and McSherry get into a oh, yes. fisticuffs? Oh, yeah. They they got into uh, one night, uh, and this is well documented, got into a drunken rage. Mr. Burrell threatened to. Well, uh, let's, let, we don't know the particulars <laughs> yeah. of that, but what we do know is McSherry ended up naming a sandwich after him after Correct. they kissed and made up. Correct. It's called the Jack Burrell sandwich. Uh, uh, I would suggest that if you should eat I it, ask take, what's on it? Uh, no, but I would take some Rolades with you. <laughs> I wouldn't eat that it. Was put it. That was cheap. That was cheap. I meant for it to be, but and I do, and I uh, I know that a lot of people don't know the whole background on this. That's why I'm saying if you go to the article, the watering hole, and then you come back and you see this uh, article today, writ of mandamus, it tells you the backstory. It tells you what's going on and how this has been going on. I can assure you that uh, if this were myself, Harry, or anybody else that's in this room. And we were to have five different instances like that, we would be in jail. We would not be out of jail. And, and the the interesting thing, you know, these interesting times that we live in with all these violent immigrants that we need to throw out of the country, what's his immigration status? Do you know? Uh, I believe his immigration status is a green card, which comes into question, too, as to how he can maintain a green card with this many um different uh, convictions and i believe that that's why some of this last ditch effort to make this look political is going on because how do you have an argument that someone else is responsible for his actions when he has a track record of four or five different incidences that are public it just it it defies logic it's the same thing now, Mr. Burrell, Mr. Burrell has a police report himself, and he did not put that out prior to the last election, and he is yet, he is yet to explain his. So, you know, peas of a pod, uh, both of them as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I would follow the case. It's going to get very interesting. I assure you it does sound like uh, uh, Paula Donardi's got some very good attorneys on her side. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens. That's a criminal case as well as a civil case. So I want to talk about something very unpopular. Okay. What I'm sure will prove to be very unpopular. Okay. Well, that's a topic. (laughs) Well, you know, it's just something that I've seen evolve over the years. And and what I'm talking about is the school resource officer career track for – municipal police officers and deputy sheriffs okay uh-huh so the first time i heard the word school resource officer i was the chief executive up in etowah county and um anybody who ever met tom Beatty remembers tom Beatty. he was a district six commissioner from uh, horton's bend and um his position was uh when the sheriff came in and said look we we need a policeman in every school and he said Little buddy, let me ask you this. I don't feel safe in church all the time. Maybe we need church resource officers, and sometimes when I go to the grocery store. But what what Tom didn't understand was the political currents have changed. 
Um, there are three things that we have no problem spending unlimited amounts of money on. Um, defense, law enforcement, uh, and I throw those in the same bracket. Economic development, which we've heard all about all that with our megasite debacle, buying bungalows and all this other stuff under the uh, guise of economic development. And then the third one is education. And I'm a huge proponent for education. Every time there's a property tax uh, referendum, I, I support those in, in cases where they make sense. And all of the ones since I've been able to vote have all made sense to me and I've supported them. Um, but what I have a problem with is uh, the idea that you need a police officer in every school in this county, even the little elementary school out in Bell Forest or whatever, is laughable. Um, if we were serious about security, um, we'd go hire some people that uh, consultants that have helped the Israelis uh, make. You know, when's the last time an Israeli plane went down? That that was. That was the uh, that was like uh, recreation for those guys back in the seventies to hijack a, well. a plane out of Israel or headed to or whatever, and all that's come to an end. So um, the idea that you're going to put a school resource officer in every school is a monumental waste of money. Uh, you don't want to have your children having contact with law enforcement ever in their life. Well, look at the shoe bomber. Look what happened with that. Everybody in the world had to take the shoes off before they got on an airplane. Because of one guy. Because of one person. Well, but we got to keep it safe. Correct. Cool. Uh, well, got to keep it safe. So, I mean, and, sometime and, and, it's. And a, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that their children aren't important because I don't have any. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, there are better ways to spend our money than putting a policeman in every school. And Tom Beatty knew that in 2001. And that's always that commission meeting's always stuck with me, um, and, and trust me, before it's over with, if these if these guys in charge in law enforcement have their way, um, we will have church resource officers. The, they they will not stop at the schools. It's going to expand and expand, and it's never going to stop until people say uncle. Um. Anyway, there's a there's a video. Uh, that the Baldwin County School Board put up. And, Nick, is that on our Facebook page? Were you able to rip that? The sheriff's speech? It's not, but we'll get it up hopefully today. Um, so so go take a look at that. I think the he was mainly, uh, the discussion was, was bullying, and um, he, he went the direction of we're going to, we don't know exactly how to do that, but, boy, we're going to, you know, recently we had a meeting with all our legislative delegation, and they're going to get us funding so that we can put a police officer in every school. Well, just count the schools, count the number of people, count the vehicles it's going to take, count the, now, now, don't just count the schools because you got to remember, we got to send these guys to training. They're, they're sworn officers. they got to keep their standards up. Um, we've got to give them all the equipment that a regular deputy would have, a vehicle, um, all those type things. So it and and obviously somebody's going to be sick one day. So you're going to you're going to need more guys than you have positions so that you can cover in uh, in the instance where what would someone's sick or va- on vacation or whatever. What would be an option? Well, I don't know. Nobody's even no, nobody's even considered anything other than we need a police officer in the school. And we all saw what happened down in Florida when it hit the fan. Correct. Um, that dude's hiding behind his car on a walkie-talkie. So, um, 
I don't know. I'm, and I'm and I'm sure they're heroic thing. And and that's and and the idea that I'm anti law enforcement is another bunch of bull. Um, well, absolutely with myself too. Uh, you know, uh, if you don't have absolutely pro law enforcement, that's correct. that's what uh, that's why my vehicle's unlocked in the parking lot. I'm pro um, <clears throat> I'm pro legal system as well, just as long as it works in a legal way. Well, I want everybody to go listen to the sheriff's speech. It, it, I'm not trying to be unfair to the man or anything else, but the idea that we're going to solve all the problems by hiring more cops is just lunacy. Um, we need to invest in our um, mental health facilities. I deal in the probate court. All I get appointed. Uh, I'm a guardian ad litem, for, and that means I represent people who are incompetent. And oftentimes people get arrested. They're over there in the jail, and it's obviously obvious they have a mental issue, not a criminal issue. So they, they'll hold a hearing and involuntarily commit them uh, based on testimony of a doctor or a learned professional. And um, the probate judge will send them down either over to uh, Alta Point Hospital in uh, Mobile or down here to Bay Point in Daphne, the old Cersei um place over here and they can only keep them for 10 days and then they give them a big jug of medicine that they're never going to take and they turn turn them loose on society again um so i don't know what the answer is i think the answer is probably a combination of things but nobody's having that discussion it's everybody got together and the sheriff's absolutely right we need to put a cop in every school maybe two or three i mean just how many is it going to take to cover every exit or is that what we're going for um anyway i think it's uh i think it's a bad idea um but that's that's a view from the cheap seats all right well let me let me close on saying one thing harry and that is go back to that this article about mr mcsherry in no way do we mean to i mean to deliberately uh defame him uh or is it my intention to defame him but i have to agree that with his record that we're looking at that this is a public concern this is a concern of the public you got you have this type of incidences happening uh in a tourist community over and over again by the same individual and then he's trying to blame someone else and they want to seal everything and hide it from the public eye well just digging the hole deeper so if they're thinking that we're going to go away on this because of the intimidation that's being leveled at us, they're absolutely wrong. The only other thing I can add, tomorrow, very important, 2.30, CBS, <laughs> Auburn's taking on LSU. I mean, I got a pull for the orange and blue, daggummit. I, I want us to win that game so bad. So we'll see well, how it goes. Good luck. All I do with football these days is the highlights. All right, boys and girls, that's number eight. Eight. We'll see you next time. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good evening. Good evening. My name is Hoss Mack, and I have the pleasure of serving as sheriff of Baldwin County. And I do appreciate everybody coming out tonight. It is uh, – those of you that are up here in the front, you ought to see. I mean, there's standing room only all the way back out into the uh, entrance area out there and people just uh, trying to get in and see. So we appreciate you coming out. It's very important. Alan touched on something that 
I think is really where we are in the state of affairs in dealing with this subject matter. And that is that we're learning. We're learning. Uh, we have not become the subject matter experts yet because a lot of this has evolved and is changing as we go on over the period of years that we've been dealing with this. Yes, we've had bullying when I was in high school. When everybody was in school, we've always had bullying. But it's a different playing field today. Social media changed it. Several other things have changed it. And so we're still learning, which is why we've introduced laws and we're having to amend laws to more address the problem. And one of the things from a law enforcement perspective that has begun over a period of years has been the introduction into the school resource officer program. To be honest with you, when the school resource officer program was began many years ago across this country, it really was there for two purposes. One was drug education because we were coming out of the 80s the 70s and 80s where we were recognized that a lot of children are introduced into drugs. In fact, now in the United States, most children are introduced to illegal drugs at age 11. So we realized that there had to be some intervention into that. And the other part of it was the security aspect. Columbine changed a lot of things as far as we started to address these incidences that were happening on school campuses. And so a lot of that started to evolve. And one of the things that came out of the school resource officer program as it began to evolve and change over the years was that something started to happen on these school campuses that had school resource officers. And what started to happen was they noticed that these officers were building relationships with children. Children were idolizing and engaging with these law enforcement officers. Different than teachers, different than counselors, different than peers. Because a lot of times they saw that law enforcement officer as a person of authority, someone that could take that action. So we started trying to, to look at that and a lot of our local area, a lot of our local departments started to involve some school resource officer programs. We started it with the sheriff's office. We started trying to work towards uh, having these officers. There are two organizations, the National Association of School Resource Officers and then our local state chapter of school resource officers that over the years began a lot of training, working and educating these law enforcement officers to serve specifically as school resource officers. And it started once again to evolve. And then a couple years ago, we had a situation happen down in Florida that was totally unacceptable that was totally tragic. And once again, served as another tragedy that we looked at and how can we take this tragedy and make something positive out of it. And so that's when Mr. Tyler, your school superintendent, contacted myself and the county commission and we brought together something very unique. We had a meeting in Robertsdale at the Central Annex and every municipality was represented there. Every police chief was there. School resource officers were there. Legislators were there. School board members were there. And we came together and we said, look, this is very simple. Go. We got to do something. We've got to do something. And so we sat down and within just a few months crafted an idea that turned into a reality.
And that was to put at least one school resource officer on every campus in the Baldwin County public school system. And we accomplished that in a very short period of time. Now, why is that important? And I think a lot of people today still look at the officers and they say, well, they're primarily there, you know, they're for security and they're doing those kind of things, which they are, which is why we want law enforcement officers there because, you know, hopefully nothing serious will ever happen. But ladies and gentlemen, we've had a school shooting in Baldwin County. We've had bomb threats on our campuses. We've had a lot of potential harmful situations that happen, although very, very few, but it has happened. But we developed the idea that a school resource officer was something much, much more than a security guard. They were somebody that would be charged to be, first of all, specifically trained. Second of all, participate in a model comprehensive program regardless of what campus that you're on. Third, have direct interaction with the students. And fourth, be an individual to that campus. I think we can all agree, one person may be a little bit more uh, qualified to deal with high school students than dealing with an elementary school student, and vice versa. So we had this meeting, we allowed, that's why we wanted the police chiefs, when I, I still refer to him as Coach Tyler, I'm sorry. When Mr. Tyler and I first started talking, you know, one of the ideas was, was the sheriff office just do this? Did we want Baldwin County deputies on every campus? And could we do this from a county level? And I said, no, because the police chiefs know their community. When that child leaves that school campus, they go right back into that community and they interact in that community and they best know those children. So that's why we wanted the stakeholders to participate in our school resource officer program. And they have and they've done. And just very quickly, we have a handful of our school resource officers with us tonight. Let's give them a hand. They're standing back there in the back. We have over 50 school resource officers now in Baldwin County. I think Alan said something very appropriate. We're all touched by this. I had a cousin three years ago that committed suicide. And what I came to learn when Jonathan committed suicide is he had lost hope. He was an adult, a young adult, and he had lost hope. And one of the things I would charge not only our school resource officers with as we move forward, and we're gonna to continue to add school resource officers, and now we have more school resource officers, we have multiple officers on campuses in some instances based upon the population of that school. But I would encourage two things, and I think this is very important for school resource officers, parents, aunts, uncles, me, you, everybody. There's two things we need to do in the lives of our children. We need to preach hope, and we need to add value. Preach hope, add value. With that, together, we'll make a difference.